Well, good afternoon. My name is Brian Parks. I am the senior pastor of Covenant Hope Church, and I want to add my welcome to Mark's welcome for you at the very beginning of our service. We're so glad that you're here. Let me lead us in a prayer, asking God to speak to us through His Word. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, you are our rock and you are our redeemer. Amen. Well, some of you might not have been with us when we started our study through the book of Genesis back in March. We suspended that uh, about the middle of June for a summertime series, largely in the book of Psalms. And now we're picking back up in Genesis, and we have two more sermons to finish up what's called the prehistory portion of Genesis, which is chapters 1 through the beginning of chapter 12, or 1 through 11, essentially, the prehistory portion of the book of Genesis. We started, of course, at the very beginning of Genesis, which is what Genesis means. It means beginnings or origins. And I want to share with you just a little quick review of what has happened in the book of Genesis in all the passages that we've covered up until the passage that we're going to speak about today. At the beginning of Genesis, it tells us that God created everything. He created the heavens and the earth. In six days, He created the land, the seas, and the heavens. He put the moon and the stars and the sun in their places above. And then He filled those places on the earth and in the heavens. He filled the earth with living things. He put animals on the land. He put fish in the sea. He put birds in the sky. And finally, God created man and woman as the grand finale of His creation. Unlike anything else He'd made, man and woman were made in God's image. They were meant to be His representative rulers on the earth. And they were to multiply and fill the earth. And he commanded them that they were to guard and keep the garden that he had planted for them on the earth. Everything was good. Everything was perfect. Everything was right in the world. Until an intruder came into the garden. The serpent tempted Adam and Eve and they disobeyed God's command. And the consequence was a ruptured relationship with God and the sentence of death. Spiritual death at first and later physical death would come. God drove them out of the garden and away from His presence. But first God made a very important promise to them. He promised them that a descendant of the woman would one day defeat this serpent. Now, Adam and Eve gave birth to two sons, but driven by the same sin which had driven them to disobey God, the oldest, Cain, killed his brother, Abel. But another son, Seth, was born to Eve, and Seth's descendants became known for their faith in God, while Cain and his descendants became known for their pride and violence. 
then sin and violence increased so much on the earth that God decided that he must put a stop to the misery and death that mankind was bringing about. And so he was going to bring a great devastating flood on the earth that would kill all living things, both man and beast. But God wouldn't wipe out all of mankind. Why? Because God had promised that a descendant of Eve would be the one who would kill the serpent. So God chose a man, Noah, a righteous man from Seth's line, and he saved Noah and his three sons and their families, along with a large number of animals in a large wooden ark that he had commanded Noah to build. When the flood came, every living thing did die, except Noah and the passengers with him on the ark. And then when the flood waters went down and the dry land appeared, Noah and his family and the animals exited the ark to begin again. And God promised that he would never again flood the earth and kill all of mankind like he had done. And he commanded Noah and his sons and their family to multiply and fill the earth, just like he had commanded Adam and Eve originally. Creation and humanity were getting a fresh start. What could go wrong? Well, I want you to know the sermon in a sentence for this afternoon's sermon. If you're taking notes, it might be helpful for you to write it down. God accomplishes His plan for the nations. God accomplishes His plan for the nations even though they sin. God will accomplish His plan for the nations even though they sin. And this afternoon, we have a large section of text. It's chapter 9, verse 18, all the way through chapter 11, verse 9. And so I'm, as we work our way through this, I'm going to read it section by section, and then I'll teach on it. So read a section, teach on it, read a section, teach on it read a section and teach on it. And you'll be greatly helped if you have your Bible with you open so that you can follow along. If you don't have a Bible, we have some Bibles at the very back of the room. They're on the welcome table. Uh, Feel free to raise your hand and one of the ushers will bring one of those to you. And you can find our passage in those Bibles very easily. It's on page four. (laughs) There's a lot of pages in there, but it's on page four because we're right at the very beginning. Well, my outline for the sermon begins by covering verses, chapter 9, verse 18 through 29. So it's the very end of chapter 9. And that point in the sermon is this, sin begins again. Sin begins again. Follow along as I read to you. Chapter 9, beginning with verse 18 to 29. The sons of Noah went forth from the ark, were Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Jepheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, 
and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Jepheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Look back with me at the very beginning of this passage in verses 18 and 19. You'll see that those verses connect our story this afternoon with the flood story. Now, we're reminded in verse 18 that Noah has three sons. Their names are Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. And the author makes it clear in verse 19 that it's from these three men that all of the people of the whole earth were dispersed or spread out. The flood had killed everyone but them. Chapter 9, verse 22, excuse me, chapter 8, verse 22, no, it's 9, was crystal clear. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out, excuse me, this is chapter 8. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. So right away, our text is reminding us that we all have the same heritage. Each one of us can trace our ancestry back to Noah and one of his three sons. And so in the book of Acts, in the New Testament, even the Apostle Paul, when he's addressing the citizens of the city of Athens about the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says to them, speaking of God, this is Acts chapter 17, verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. This is the testimony of the Scriptures. We all come from this family that we're reading about. No matter what differences there are in our bodies, our, the color of our skin, our languages, our cultures, we all come from Noah who comes from Adam. And that should stop and halt and prevent any boasting about our ethnic group or our nationality. The most distinguishing factor about each and every one of us, no matter what we look like or what we sound like, is that we're all made in the image of God. Every single one of us in this room. We're a part of the human family, and we're all related to one another. So to look down on others of a different nationality or a different race, to think that they're inferior, is to disrespect someone who is made in the image of God. There's no room for disrespectful speech about another human being. There's no room for discrimination in the actions of Christians. And most importantly, there's no room for that in the heart of a Christian either. You know what? Our prideful hearts is where that sin always starts. Brothers and sisters, I, I want to ask you a question when you're with your colleagues at work, or maybe your family members, and someone makes 
a racially charged joke, do you laugh at it? That's sin. Do you attribute the particular sins, maybe of one difficult person from a different nationality than you, to that entire nationality, that entire people group? You need to repent. Ask yourself, is this something that I need to ask the Lord for forgiveness for? Ask Him to change your heart. Racial and national pride is a sin, and we must let the Spirit of God root it out in our lives. We, of all people, Covenant Hope Church, have the opportunity to demonstrate something different to the world. Love across nationalities. You know, on multiple occasions, many of us have been sitting in the food court at Ibn Battuta Food Court, enjoying conversation with one another after our church service, and people have come up to us at the table and said, who are you and why are you sitting together? See, without even, without even speaking to those people by being friends with one another, gathering with one another, loving one another deeply, we bear witness to the reconciling power of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, be careful. Don't let racism sneak into your heart. There's no place for that in the church of God. Now, after these two verses of introduction, verses 20 through 24, then tell the story of what happened to Noah and his sons after the flood had ended. And you should notice that this situation has many things in common with Adam and Eve back in the first few chapters of Genesis. Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4. It says, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. Now, if you'll think back, Adam was a man who had been created by God where? From the soil. In addition to that, he was to guard and tend the garden as well. He was a farmer. God has, in chapter 9 here, created a second garden and another gardener he's put in it. Well, Noah plants a vineyard. And he makes wine from the grapes, but he becomes drunk, and he falls asleep unclothed in his tent, we're told. And then Ham, his youngest son, enters and sees his nakedness. Now, you should take note. It says here that Ham saw, just like Eve saw the forbidden fruit was good to make one wise. You might have noticed as well that the author wants us to have it fixed in our minds What's really important about Ham is that he is the father of a son named Canaan. He mentions it multiple times. It kind of sticks out in the passage. You, like me, may have read it to yourself and you thought, why are we hearing about Canaan here? He's not even entered into the scene yet, but it's important. As the story unfolds here and then throughout the entire Old Testament, we'll see how important it is that we know who Canaan is. Well, Ham, Ham tells his two brothers that his father's drunk and he's naked. And based on verse 24, which says that Noah, when he awoke, he knew what his youngest son had done to them, we can safely assume that when Ham told his brothers, there was mocking and there was ridicule that went on. Ham was dishonoring his father, a very serious thing. 
And regardless of Noah's sin of drunkenness, Ham had done something wicked. And so Shem and Jepheth, rather than joining in with the mocking of Ham, they walk in backwards and they cover their father with a garment. They cover his nakedness. And of course, that should remind you of Adam and Eve and their feelings of shame at their nakedness after they had sinned against God in the Garden of Eden. Well, Ham evidently made fun of his father's nakedness. God, on the other hand, had covered the nakedness of Adam and Eve in his mercy and kindness. Now, it's interesting that the author doesn't make a point to call Noah's drunkenness a sin. And as we work our way through the book of Genesis, uh, later on, perhaps next year, 2019, we'll start back into Genesis, we'll see that again, that the author doesn't always comment on what is clearly sin in the stories that we read in Genesis. Still, we should not miss what role drunkenness played in this episode. Now, you should know that wine is something that the Bible speaks about very frequently, and it affirms it as something good. Psalm 104.15 tells us that God has given wine to gladden the heart of man. But you know what? All good gifts can be misused and treated sinfully. The Bible's clear. Drunkenness is a sin. Too much drink lowers a person's inhibition so that the sin that's in every man and woman's heart is all too easily acted upon. To be drunk, of course, is by definition to not have self-control, which is a fruit of the Holy Spirit described in Galatians chapter 5, verse 23. Well, the consequences of Noah's drunkenness and Ham's dishonoring his father are very, very serious. And when Noah awakes and discovers how his youngest son has treated him, he speaks what amounts to a prayer. He says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Of course, we've learned prior in the story that Canaan is going to be a son of Ham. In Genesis chapter 3, God, of course, pronounced curses for Adam and Eve, another parallel with the earlier Genesis story. But here it's Noah who's offering a prayer that includes a curse for Ham's son, Canaan. And he also prays, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Jepheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. So in his prayer, Noah blesses the covenant-making God by his personal name, the Lord, L-O-R-D, all capital letters, and he says that the Lord is the God of Shem. He's the oldest son. And from Noah's prayer, we can see that Shem is closely associated with the Lord. He must have been the son who stood out as righteous, the one who had faith in God. Noah's request is that God make Canaan, Shem's nephew, to be his servant. And the second oldest son, Jepheth, will be second in rank to his brother Shem because he'll dwell in the tents of Shem, was the prayer. And Canaan will be his servant as well. Now, this is a mysterious and a cryptic prayer, isn't it? But one thing is sure, sin has been committed by the new founders of humanity, just like Adam and Eve sinned. 
And just like Adam and Eve's sin would result in the sin of Cain murdering Abel, his brother, Noah and Ham's sin will result in some kind of ongoing conflict between Noah's sons and their descendants. One will rule over the others. One will have control over the others. One will serve the others. It's happening all over again, isn't it? God has started over with Noah and his family, but sin and its terrible effects have begun again. I wonder, if you're not a Christian, do you think to yourself sometimes, you know, I just need God to give me a second chance. I've made some mistakes in my life, they're big ones, but if God would give me a second chance, I'd do it right. I'd honor Him. I'd please Him. In fact, some Christians even sometimes speak about God and they say He's the God of second chances. But do you see what's happening here in our story? There's something like a second chance for humanity here, but they've sinned again. I wonder what leads you to think that a second chance is all you need. What's to prevent you from just messing up again? In fact, that's the story of humanity that the Bible wants to tell us. Over and over and over again, humanity sins and disobeys against God. I mean, we learned earlier in Genesis that Noah was a righteous man. We're told in chapter 6 of Genesis. The Bible doesn't say that about too many people. But we know that Noah wasn't a sinless man. We see it here. And sinless is what God requires. He is holy and perfect, an all-righteous God. And He made man to be a sinless creature in His image. Oh, but we have fallen short. We've missed the mark. And the sinful nature that we've inherited from our forefathers, from Adam and from Noah on down through the thousands of years, guarantee that we'll disobey God again and again. Friends, what we need is not a second chance, but a Savior. Someone who will keep God's perfect law perfectly on our behalf. Someone who will satisfy God's law and let His record of perfection be credited to us. Someone who would love us enough to take the punishment of death that we all deserve for repeatedly breaking God's law. And who would do that but God Himself? Through Noah, mankind was saved through the flood only to sin again. But Noah was only a man. He had no perfect record of righteousness to gift to his descendants. And he couldn't pay the price for all of man's sin. In fact, as a sinner, he too would receive the sentence that Adam and Eve did, death. Verses 28 and 29 tell us, All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Noah died. But through Jesus Christ, the God-man, mankind is saved from not just a temporary flood, but the final judgment. Jesus' undeserved death pays the price for all the sins of any sinner who trusts in Him. 
and he has a righteousness, a righteousness, friends, that is so overflowing, so boundless, so untarnished, and that is what saves sinners from their sin. You and I don't need a second chance. We don't need a hundred more chances. We'd simply sin again. No, we need a Savior, and His name is Jesus. When you recognize that you've fallen short of God's righteousness and you say to Him, rather than, Lord, give me a second chance, you say, Lord, if you gave me a thousand more chances to live righteously, I couldn't do it. I need a righteousness that comes from someone else. I reject my sin, Lord, and I trust in your righteous Son, Jesus. That is how you become a Christian. You can follow Him. You can trust in Him. You can be made new by Him even today. Trust in Jesus. Well, you might remember that Genesis is divided into sections throughout the entire book, and each section begins with the statement, these are the generations of. And we've seen already in the chapters prior to this, the generations of the heavens and the earth in chapter 2, the generations of Adam in chapter 5, the generations of Noah in chapter 6, and now we come to the fourth section, the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. And this section tells us about how God created all the nations of the earth. And that's the title of point two this afternoon. God created the nations. God created the nations, and it's all of chapter 10. Now, before you start deciding to take a nap while I read all of chapter 10, I'm not going to read this entire chapter to you, but I want to walk us through and point out specific verses to you that are very important. You might begin to read through it and you think, oh, it's just a bunch of names and you skip to chapter 11. Don't do that. No, there's very, very important things that Moses, the author, wants to tell us here. The first batch of nations that God creates come from Jepheth, the middle son of Noah. And those nations are listed in verses 2 through 4. And what Moses, the author, does here and in the rest of the lists to come in chapter 10 is select certain descendants to trace, but not all of them. And so Jepheth has seven sons, we, we learn. But then the author only traces a few of the descendants of two of those sons. Now what that likely means is that Moses wanted to only list the nations that were either most well-known or most important to the Israelites who would read these accounts later on in history. And then in verse 5, there's a verse that is repeated in a similar form after the descendants of each son are listed. He says here, from these, look with me at verse 5, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. So lands, language, clans, nations. That's the formula that's repeated after each son and his descendants are listed. Now, Jepheth is perhaps the least important line of descendants to the Israelites, and that's why his list is the shortest. Well, next come the descendants of Ham, the youngest son of Noah and the one who sinned against his father. And the detail that we get about Ham's list is very, very extensive. And you read down through Ham's list of descendants, 
If you know much about the Bible, you'll see that there are some very important names of nations here. Many of them would become Israel's greatest enemies. So look with me, for example, at verse 8 through 12. Just run your finger down through 8 through 12. First of all, we see that one of the four sons of Ham, Cush, is shown to have fathered a man named Nimrod. And we get to know about Nimrod, strangely enough. He was an industrious and ambitious man. Uh, There was even a saying that was named after him. He was a fighter. He was a hunter. And in all likelihood, of course, he was a brilliant military commander. And he founded some very, very important cities which become nations. Look with me at verse 10. Look at verse 10 and you'll see the name Babel or Babel, also known as Babylon, who would one day come and conquer Israel. In verse 11, we see another list of places in Assyria, another very, very important place, and a city, a specific city is mentioned there, Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of the nation of Assyria, who would also come and conquer part of Israel. In verse 13, Ham's son Egypt, or maybe some of your Bibles might say Mizraim, Egypt eventually becomes an enemy of Israel. In fact, by the beginning of the second book in the Bible, Exodus, just after Genesis. Another enemy of Israel is descended from Egypt, in fact. If you'll run your finger all the way through Egypt's descendants, you'll see the Philistines in verse 14. And last and most important in Israel's history would be the Canaanites, listed from verses 15 through 18. These are the people who would occupy the land that God would very soon promise to Abraham and his descendants. They would become known for terrible, terrible sinfulness. Their religious worship involved ritual prostitution and child sacrifice. When God gave His rules and commands to the Israelites for how they were to live, He often contrasted how He would have them live versus the Egyptians and the Canaanites. So, for example, in Leviticus chapter 18, in the first three verses, God says through Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. Now, after listing all the Canaanites, which looks like a list of pests that you might call a pest control people to come and exterminate from your house, all the ites, their land then is detailed in verse 19. And there, if you run your finger through there, you'll see the infamous Sodom and Gomorrah, which is destroyed by God because of their great wickedness just in chapter 19. The descendants of Ham would become a thorn in the side of the Israelites. And that's foreshadowed by Noah's prayer for curses to be on Canaan, Ham's son. Now, Moses saves the eldest son, Shem, and his descendants for last because it's from Shem's line that the Israelites would come. And verse 21 breaks then the pattern 
from how Jepheth's and Ham's sons are listed. Look with me just for a moment at verse 21. Look for it. Verse 21, he says, To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Jepheth, children were born. So before he begins listing all of the sons of Shem, he jumps down to the great-grandson of Shem named Eber. Eber is name, would be the root and the origin of the name Hebrews, another name for the Jews. And of course, you may know that all of the descendants of Shem would be called Semites, if you've heard that term, or the Semitic people. In verse 25, you see that the two sons of Eber are highlighted, and we learn about those two sons. One of them was named Peleg, and one was named Joktan. And nothing is said about Peleg except this really interesting phrase that in his days the earth was divided, of course, which might be a reference to the scattering of all the nations, which we're going to read about in just a few minutes. It's, of course, through the line of Peleg that Abram would be born, Abram, the father of the Israelites. We'll hear about that next week. Well, lastly, the author closes out the section about the sons of Shem with the same formula in verses 31 and 32, clans, languages, lands, and nations. All of the nations of the earth came from these three sons of Noah and their descendants. It's really staggering to think about. And one of the things that we can learn from this chapter with so many nations and peoples listed is that the God of the Bible and the Christian faith that it teaches is not a Western invention. Its origin, in fact, is in the East. It's in Asia, even some source in Africa, even Arabia, close to where we live right now. And that's where both mankind and our faith originate. And that's something that many Christians and especially many non-Christians do not realize. Because they think that Christianity came from the West, they might say then, well, Christianity is not for us, it's a Western religion. But it's not true. It's not true at all. And one way that we can work to dispel this idea is that when we speak with people about our faith, we point first and foremost to the Bible and what it teaches, rather than maybe to Christian teachers who are from the West, who you may see online or read their books. And now, of course, many of these teachers are wonderful. They're very helpful for us in our growth in the faith. I have many books on my shelves from Western authors. <laughs> and many people, even in this room, have been led to Christ by Westerners, which is wonderful. Praise God. But better that we point people to the source, to the Bible, which has its origin in a people who were Middle Easterners. Our faith started not too far from here. Now, another important lesson that we can draw from this chapter 10 is that the God of creation is the God of all the nations. And just as Adam and Noah and Noah's descendants are all accountable to God, so all the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Jepheth, all the nations of the earth, are accountable to God. They must all answer to Him one day on the day of judgment. 
So seeing the list of these nations, many of whom would be Israel's enemies, we, we might be tempted to think that God damned some of them and only loved Israel. But we have to read the Bible as a whole, don't we? We have to keep reading. And two chapters from now, just two chapters from now, in chapter 12, God will promise blessing for all the families of the earth through Abraham's family. That's why they were chosen that through them all the families of the earth would be blessed. The author of Genesis doesn't explain how, but as the Old Testament unfolds, we see God promising that even those nations who fought against Israel would one day be some of the people who would worship the God of Israel. Of course, the corporate reading that Mark drew your attention to from Isaiah, it was about Egypt and Assyria, two bitter enemies of of Israel who would one day be called by God, my people, and the work of my hands. Isn't that amazing? God chose Israel so that from among them the Savior would be born, the Savior of the whole world, all nations. And the last thing that I want you to see in this chapter is actually much more personal. All these nations came from three brothers, And they would become enemies of one another. Wars would be fought between these descendants. And all of that was because of sin. Is it any wonder that we find some of our most difficult relationships or some of the most painful problems that we face in our immediate or our extended families? Is it any wonder? Time and time again, we travel home, And then we come back burdened by encountering conflicts with our family. Some of us in this room are being pressured by parents to marry someone who's not a person of faith. Some of us may have aunts and uncles or other extended relatives who are holding grudges against one another, not speaking to one another for years on end. Some of us have Extended families where there are broken or empty and dead marriages that cause the most awkward situations for us. Or maybe it's siblings who are wayward and they're at odds with us because we're following the Lord. You know, we need to support one another as we try to deal with these situations in the most godly ways possible. We need to pray for one another as we journey home, which includes oftentimes many wonderful experiences, but as well the difficult ones. I encourage you, if you're struggling with a family problem, to share it with a brother or sister in the church. Let them pray with you and for you as you go and maybe when you come back. Help you decide what's a wise course of action. How can you be most faithful to Jesus in difficult and tangled situations in our families. Let's not gossip, but let's lean on each other in the midst of these problems. We see they're as old as time. Well, chapter 10 tells the story of how the first nations of the earth came to be after the flood, but it doesn't tell us why and how they spread out on the earth. But chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, does tell us that important story. And that brings us to our third point this afternoon, 
God spreads the nations. God spreads the nations. That's verses 1 through 9 in chapter 11. I am going to read this to you. So follow along with me. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech." So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Well, verse 1 tells us that this is taking place sometime during the growth of the descendants of Noah's three sons. And so the events of chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, actually happen sometime in the middle of chapter 10, what's told or summarized in chapter 10. The people of chapter 11, we can see, are industrious. They've created bricks that they hardened by baking them in fire, and of course that would allow them to build really strong and tall structures. And that's exactly what they set out to do. Verse 4 tells us that their intention is to build a city and a tower together. But their project isn't a celebration of the God that had given them these skills and abilities. They want a tower that will have its top in the heavens, and they aren't doing it for God's glory. Instead, they want to make a name for themselves. And another factor that's motivating them is that they want to do all this lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, you might, might remember how the serpent tempted Eve in the Garden of Eden when she considered eating the forbidden fruit. The serpent said to her that when she ate it, she would be like God. Her sin was driven by a desire to actually take on qualities of God beyond what God had given her when He created her in His image. She wanted to be a God, to have something that God had not given to her. And we see this happening here again in chapter 11. They want a tower to reach to the heavens, not to get closer to God, but to become gods. They want the praise of gods. This is the sin of pride. To reach for something that isn't meant to be theirs. To replace God who deserves all praise with themselves. But, of course, there's more to their sin. They want to avoid being dispersed over the face of the earth. But you'll remember that that was a specific command of God to Abram, excuse me, to Adam and to Noah and his sons. 
He said, multiply and fill the earth. Instead, these people wanted some kind of security that they thought would come from staying together rather than depending on God and His commands. Now, God took notice of what they were doing. (laughs) And verse 5 emphasizes that this project that they thought would make them great and would reach up into the heavens was so small compared to God that He actually had to come down and see it. Now, we know God doesn't have to come down to see anything anywhere. He knows everything everywhere. But the author is telling us something. This great project of theirs was actually a puny project compared to God. (laughs) But God recognizes that if they are joined together in rebellion against Him, committed to one another in sinful purposes, they're going to be able to do anything. And it will bring great harm to themselves and to the earth. And so in verse 7, God says, let us go down and do what? Confuse their language. The confusion that came about as their languages changed brought a halt to the project, of course. Can you imagine what that project meeting was like the first day after God had begun to confuse their languages? Talk about a mess. I know some of you work in construction and you have to coordinate lots of people. You think you've seen a mess before? This was a royal mess, a grand mess. No one knew what anyone else was doing. And so, of course, the project came to a halt, just as God had planned. And as a result of that as well, they began to separate from one another and disperse across the face of the earth. Now we're told by the author that this city was called Babel or Babel. The Babylonians called their city the gateway of God. (laughs) But the Bible's story names the city, He Confuses which is a better description, and it's from God's viewpoint. Now, even today, every day, you and I actually deal with the effects of what God did in this passage in Genesis 11, especially here in Dubai, when you don't understand your coworker, when you're in a restaurant and you hear the people at the next table speaking in a language, talking to one another, and you can't understand a word that they're saying. You know, I'm subscribed to uh, eVision through Eti Salat. I mostly do it to watch football. But there are hundreds of channels in this subscription, and it's every language imaginable. Tagalog, Hindi, Urdu, Farsi, and of course Arabic, and more. God divided the nations of the earth so long ago because of their sinful intentions together. But our God is not ultimately a God of confusion, is He? No, He's a God of order. And more importantly, our God is a God of blessing and love. And those are His ultimate intentions for the nations. After Jesus was crucified and had risen from the dead, He gathered with His disciples and He told them to wait in Jerusalem for the promised Spirit whom He would send. He ascended into heaven before their very eyes and they went on to Jerusalem and obeyed Him. And they waited as he had told. For over a little, little over a month, they waited. And then during a Jewish festival, the festival of Pentecost, which had brought people into Jerusalem from all over the surrounding world, something amazing happened. 
And Giellen read to us about that earlier in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and I want to read to it, it to you one more time. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a mighty sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? What did it mean? Well, it meant that, meant that God was reversing the confusion of Genesis 11 and replacing it with the unity of Acts chapter 2. Different languages would remain, of course, but the miraculous work of the Spirit of God would send the good news of Jesus Christ out into the world after that day of Pentecost. It would be communicated in every language known to man. What God once did to frustrate the nation's sinful purposes, He would eventually reverse to provide a message of forgiveness for the sins of the nations. Brothers and sisters, do you see that God is still doing that today? His great work of redemption and salvation are not finished. The gospel is uniting where sin once brought division. First of all, division between man and God and also between man and man. This is the most important thing that God is doing, the salvation of the nations and if we're God's people, it should be the most important thing to us as well. Have you given yourself to God's purposes to save the nations? What's your part to play? What is it? Is it prayer? Like we pray each week together for a people who have little gospel witness, like the millions of people that we prayed for in our pastoral prayer today who are from India. Is it to give? Are you contributing to cross-cultural evangelistic worth both through this church and the ministries that we might recommend to you? Is it to go? Are you taking steps to share the gospel cross-culturally here in this cross-cultural land so that maybe someday God might send you out from a faithful local church like we're trying to be here at Covenant Hope to reach the nations who haven't heard the name of Christ. Whatever you do, whatever you do, give yourself to God's purpose among the nations. This is God's heart, and it should be ours as well.
Now, one day, God's project of unifying His people will be complete. And when all the sons and daughters of God have repented and believed, God will make all things new. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. And God and His people will dwell together in a city, not that they built based on their pride, but one that God built based on love. Revelation chapter 21 says this, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will, never, there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. The nations will be there. We will be there, brothers and sisters. God is doing a great work of redemption through Jesus Christ, His Son, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's live lives of praise and sacrifice to join Him in it. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we praise You and thank You that though man and we ourselves sinned again and again and again, You were working out from the very beginning of time a plan to redeem us through Jesus Christ, Your Son. We praise You and thank You, Lord, that You were doing that, that You are doing that, and that You will complete it. We praise You for that certainty, and we pray, Father, that it would motivate us to be a part of what You're doing. In Christ's name, amen.